Good morning. It's good to see you. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an off-site campus or uh, on one of the venues here, the chapel or the warehouse, or maybe you're working out to a podcast. I pray for strength for you to last as long as this message does. Well, we're, glad, we're glad you're here. <clears throat> I'm so happy to be here. I cannot tell you how happy. I wanted to tell you guys some good news. I got some phenomenally, you, you just aren't going to believe this, okay? You're just not going to believe the news I have this week. I couldn't hardly wait till today to, to share it. I got an email this week from somebody I didn't know, but they know me. And um, it's from a foreign country. And uh, they, this, this individual had uh, worked in a corrupt government and uh, worked for a long period of time and a little bit of time had uh, actually siphoned money off into a personal private account. And uh, then they came to Christ and um, felt really guilty about what they had done, went to their pastor and decided to go through a time of fasting and prayer. What, what did God want them to do? If they turned the money in, <clears throat> they would be probably executed by the government. And they said God spoke to them and said, don't give the money back, put it in ministry. And their pastor knew who I was. And so uh, he wrote me an email. The guy wrote me an email this week to give me $25 million. Now, just a minute, just a minute. Let me show you the email. There was some spelling errors in it. It's from Nigeria. (laughs) What are you laughing about? I'm, I got great news. I am deeply offended. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rain on your parade someday. Now, actually, when I got that this week, I thought, I got excited. Then I thought, this is too good to be true. All they wanted was a little personal information from me in order to make the transaction go. But some of you have gotten that email too, haven't you? Yeah. How many of you have ever had something come across your way that was just too good to be true. Yeah, it can be all kinds of things like, like, let's talk iPads for a minute. Should we talk iPads? It's the same old one. Didn't want to stand in line. But you know, I got, got an ad that said you can get an iPad for like $20, 1999. That just sounded too good to be true. And, and I looked it up and it was too good to be true. It wasn't really true. There were a lot of things attached. Or, or it could be sweepstakes. You know, there are legitimate sweepstakes, but I've had them come my way that you had to actually give them money in order to enter into the sweepstakes. And uh, what kind of deal is that? Or have you heard the ones, we will remove all of your mortgage, all of your debt. If you just give us $2,000, doesn't matter how big the debt is. And that's like awesome. You know, what if you have a debt of like 100000 No problem, $2,000 and we'll get her done. Have you know that's a scam? Here's a rule of thumb. If it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. It's, it's not true. Now, we all know that, right? Now, why do I even talk about it? Because we've got a problem today. We are ending, concluding this series on Philippians. I have just enjoyed myself doing this. I've enjoyed studying in it. Several of you have said, you know, there have been some neat things that have been happening in you. And uh, we've learned about, you know, the difference between happiness and joy. And we've learned about contentment. We've learned about, you know, making Christ first. We've learned all kinds of things through Philippians. And we come down to the end of it. And the last 
one of the last verses in the last chapter of Philippians is one of these promises that it's almost too good to be true. In fact, when we read it, we put it in the same category in our mind as an email from Nigeria or an offer that's just, you know, absurd about your mortgage and all of that because it's just too good to be true. And so I want to read it and then I want to talk about it just a little bit and I put it in context and see if we can get some, uh, really some principles that we can live by. The, the passage is in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. And uh, it's on your outline sheet. I've got it in the NIV version. It's also going to be on the screen. Can we read it out loud here and at the campuses? Can you guys read along with us, if you would? Philippians 4.19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. There it is. My God will meet all. Say all together. All your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Well, when we hear that, we, we immediately begin to go, what does it really mean? You know, does it really mean money? Or And let me just say this, and we're, we're going to spend our whole day today talking about the context and how to apply it. It's talking about money. Um, Paul had previously talked about the fact that, in fact, last week we said that the, the whole book of Philippians is like a missions letter. You know, he's saying, hey, thanks for giving, you know, for my mission trips and all of that. And it's within the context of that and their giving that he says, oh, hey, by the way, my God is going to supply all of your needs, your financial needs first and other needs that you have along the way. My God will supply those according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I have two things happen to me when I read that verse. One of them is I get really excited about that. God promises to supply all of our needs. But I have questions. I don't know if you do. I have questions. I have questions. Is, is that really what God means? Does God really promise to meet all of my needs? And then, then, then I have questions like this. Then why do people I know have needs? Why do good people, Christian people, People that don't know Jesus. Why do people have needs? If God promises to supply all of the needs, does all mean everybody? Is this really what God's saying? Is this promise true? Is there something I'm not seeing? Is God a liar? I know God's not a liar, but there's some, it's just really hard. What, what about, you know, single mother in our church that just does the best she can and struggle, 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 struggles? Are you telling me that God is meeting all of her needs? Is he talking about something else here? What's the answer? Is this a promise for everybody? Well, let me give you the answer up front, and then I'm going to take the whole time, rest of our time, to kind of talk about what it means. And, and here it is. It is a promise. God did not lie, but it's not a promise for everybody. Okay? It's not a promise for everybody. Uh, it's not even a promise for all Christians. Because in this promise, as with most of the promises of God, there is a qualifier, okay? There is a premise to the promise. When you read through in the Old Testament, God promises, you know, do all these things for His people. There is almost always a qualifier. If you will do this, He says, then I will do this. 
If you follow me, I will be your God. On and on and on and on. Well, this promise has context. Philippians 4.19 isn't just something you rip out of the Bible and say, I'm going to claim that promise. Well, you can claim the promise, but you need to know the context so that there, you, you understand what the prequalifier is, what the preface preface to this is. So today what I want to do is I want to talk about it because it is in the context of generosity. He's talking about the generosity of the Philippian church and the context tells why this is a promise specifically to them and maybe to many of us. Don't know. You'll have to determine that. And I want to make three general statements about generosity. And then I want to read kind of the background of this, make some application. And maybe at the end we can respond to God in a way that will honor Him and be proper for all of us. So here's what I call the truth about generosity. Here's the first statement. God promises to reward generosity. God promises to reward generosity. Right now in my own uh, personal Bible study time, I'm reading in Proverbs. Last year, I told you that um, I really felt like God directed me to read all the way through the Bible chronologically, and so I did that. This year, I felt like at least for the first quarter of the year, that uh, just a prompting of God, just to read Proverbs. Nothing else, just Proverbs, and read one a day that corresponds to the, to the day. You know, there's 31 of them. You just pick whatever the day is and read it. Really read it and reread it and meditate on it and get the wisdom that comes from Proverbs flowing more uh, in, in my life. And so in the first quarter, I'll have read through Proverbs three times. Now, here's what I'm observing. The writer of the Proverbs, mostly Solomon, doesn't just make stuff up, okay? It's not like he's sitting around thinking, oh, I'm going to make a rule here. And so he makes a rule and everybody has to follow it. It's not that at all. The writer of the Proverbs is just observing life. And as he observes a principle of life, he writes it down. He says, this is how life works. And so if you want to make life work properly, this is probably what you ought to do. And he's writing it specifically to his children, to his son, that he will gain wisdom. And in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 25, it says this. Here's just a principle of life. It says, the generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. It's not a rule he's making up. It's, it's, it's like there's a, there's a life force. There is a force somewhere that observes life and those that are generous will prosper. Those that help other people, refresh other people, will themselves be blessed. That's what he says. He just kind of observes it. Doesn't make it up. Just this is life. Now as we go into the New Testament, we find Jesus kind of amplifying it and saying something similar. And here's what you need to know about Jesus. Jesus doesn't just show up in the New Testament. It's not like, well, he was born and here's Jesus on the scene. Jesus is there from the very beginning. In the very beginning, uh, John says that he is the Word and the Word was made flesh and the Word was there in the very beginning. Jesus is all through the Old Testament. He just doesn't have a body there. Jesus is the life force that the writer of the Proverbs observed. Jesus is the one that, that makes life happen, that, that uh, suspends the earth uh, in space and causes time to exist, even time change weekends. I don't think he had anything to do with that. I think that was the devil. <laughs> but Jesus is there. And in, in Luke chapter 
uh, 6 and verse 38, he kind of gives flesh to that concept from Proverbs. He says this, Give and you will receive. You will be given much. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will spill into your lap. The way you give to others is the way that God will give to you. He says, give. Give money, and you'll receive money. Give praise, you'll receive praise. Give encouragement, you'll receive encouragement. And here's how it'll work. you'll, You'll not get the same amount that you give, but it'll be pressed down, Shaken and running over. And the only way I can understand that is uh, the example of my trash can. How many of you guys have trash cans outside of your house? If your trash can is outside of your house right now, where it can be seen, your neighborhood association, the Gestapo that runs your neighborhood, what they will do is they will give you a note and fine you because nobody wants to see your trash can, right? Is that the way it is in your neighborhood? It's that way in my neighborhood. I thank God for my neighborhood, but I have to put my trash can away. And here's what my wife does invariably. She will say on the day before trash day, she will have the largest uh, bag of trash that we've had all week long. She will say, honey, will you take that down and put it in the trash? And so I take it down and the trash already, the lid is propped like this. There's stuff coming out. And I will holler back lovingly and say, there's no more room. And she'll say, yes, there is. Just press it down. You know what happens when you press down old trash? Oh, but I press it down because I love her. And I'll put the other one in. Press it down. And and amazingly enough, that trash can will hold more than I thought that it could. What a wonderful example of what God does in our lives when we give. He says... That when you give, when you are generous, money, time, treasure, whatever it happens to be, when you give, that God Himself will open your little trash can, actually your life, and He will push down that's there. He'll take whatever measure you use and He'll, man, He'll make more room and He'll, where it's just running over. And Jesus says, this is how life works because God promises to reward generosity. Here's the bad news. Not everybody gets it because evidently you can block generosity with your stinginess. Okay? doesn't say that God rewards everybody the same. He says those that give, get. Now, there's been a prosperity gospel that's kind of distorted this whole thing. But I don't want to let somebody else hijack what's really God's truth here. And so I want to kind of redefine that just a little bit. But the truth is, God promises to reward generosity. And then Paul, kind of hitchhiking on Proverbs and what Jesus had to say, makes this promise in Philippians 4.19 of God supplying all of their needs, but it's in response to the context is their generosity they have given. Let's read about that. In verse 14, it says this, Even so... Now, underline even so, if you have that in your circlet. That's giving you context of the whole thing. He's talking about the previous verse. The previous verse was last week's teaching, where he said, uh, you know what, Um, I've learned to be content with whatever I have. Uh, I've learned when I don't have much to be content. I've learned when I've had a lot to be content. I'm really not asking for your money. Your money would be appreciated. But if you don't give, it's okay, because God is able to supply all of my needs 
or, or I can, no, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the even so. I, I, you know, if you give, great. If you don't, it's your loss, not mine, because God, uh, I can do all things through Christ. He says, even so, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. He said, even though I, I'm not asking for an offering, he said, you've done good to give, to be generous to me in my present difficulty. Tim Keller in generous, his book, Generous Justice, says that being truly generous doesn't mean giving someone money, just giving someone money. It means really sharing in their burden. And that's what he said. He says, you, you gave to me. You, you shared in my trouble. And when you do that, to be truly generous, that means that there's pain and sacrifice involved. That, that, that means when you're prompted to share in somebody's trouble, it's really not generous unless it's painful, unless it inconveniences us. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had a situation, maybe the church needed something or somebody in your family did or God really prompted you about a neighbor or maybe it was a situation across you know, the ocean somewhere. And for you to give would be really, really inconvenient. You'd have to put off buying something. Um, you'd have to, all kinds of, you'd have to go without stuff, whatever. That's what generosity means. Okay. Generosity is measured by inconvenience. It's not inconvenient. It's probably really not all that generous. And so he says that you have done well. You've been generous to share with me in my present difficulty. Now, I'm glad he admitted to difficulties. How do you know it's really hard when somebody who's like really up there never has a problem? It's like, that's, that's why I like, I, I play just a tiny bit of golf every once in a while. And I like watching golf on TV. And I love it when Tiger Woods or Phil Mickelson or somebody like that puts one right in the lake. I love that. It's like, yes. I, and I'm not like rejoicing in their loss so much. It just makes me feel better. It's like that guy, he's really, really good, but he has problems. How many of you know it's good to know somebody that's really, really good actually has the same problems that you have? And this is what Paul's doing. We put Paul up on a pedestal. We go, man, this guy, he's God's man of faith and power. And he always gets all of his needs supplied. And he does very, very... No, and he says, no, you know what? I was having trouble. I was in a real pinch. In fact, I am right now. I don't have any source of income. And I'm in prison and all this kind of stuff. And he said, in my trouble, you were generous. Paul's a generous guy. If you know anything about him, he's got a small business. He supports himself. In fact, it, he supports several people that travel along with him. In fact, at one point, um, he's making a case that pastors should be paid by the, by the church. And uh, he says, honestly, he says, I should be paid as an apostle who laid the foundation for your church. I have a right to be paid a salary from that. To, to the worker has a right to live from the, you know, what, he, what he produces. But he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to take anything. I want you to use your money for other people, other things, it should be mine, but I'm not going to do it. He's generous. He said, I don't want to be a burden to you. He's just a generous guy. But here he is, and he has trouble. He can't even support himself at this particular time. Just because he doesn't have much right now doesn't mean that he's like gone from the generous category to the stingy category. It's just that's the thing that life has given him. See, I know people in this church. I know some of them who have who have had in the past very, very large incomes. I know some who are 
single parents that have never had much, but they're generous. They have always, I just hugged one of them in the foyer just before this service, and she's, she's always been generous, never, never had much. But some of you have been generous, but right now, not only do you not have much, you don't have anything. I know some friends here that haven't had a paycheck in a couple of years. I know some, some folks that are really, really struggling with the economy right now. And I, can I just pastor you just for a minute? Can I pastor you just for a minute? Some of you are feeling like you're not generous anymore. And that's not true. That's not true. Generosity comes from something deeper inside of here. Paul was generous even though he didn't have anything to give at this particular time. And some of you, when you hear me talking about generosity or money or whatever, and that happens to be the direction that you know this particular passage goes, you get to feeling guilty. It's like, man, I remember a time when and I wish. And can I tell you, that's not God. That put horns on it. That's coming from the devil. What he's trying to do is discourage you and get you off track to thinking like we talked about last week where you need a filter. He's he's trying to get you to thinking about things that you shouldn't be thinking about. Just because you don't have resources right now doesn't mean that you're not generous. And you know what? Sometimes God rewards generosity by making your pile bigger. But there are times that God rewards generosity just by sustaining you through difficult times. And some of you sense that right now. And honestly, it's a lot easier to be on the giving side of generosity than it is on the receiving side when you are a generous person. And some of you know what I'm talking about there. And sometimes God has us there because He's dealing with some deeper issues, maybe layering it open a little bit. Maybe it's some pride stuff or whatever. I don't know what God's doing. But all I want to say to you is don't feel guilty. Just just praise God for His supply in whatever way that he does it. And that's kind of what Paul is saying. Verse 15, he says, As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other churches did that. What a poor testimony. I don't know why other churches didn't do that. But he said, you guys were the only ones that really helped. In fact, even when I was in Thessalonica, which was actually the next place that he went to after Philippi, he said, you sent help more than once. And I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive the reward for your kindness. He's saying, I want you to understand and know that God rewards generosity. That's the first thing that you need to know about generosity. The reason verse 19 was a promise to them was because they had a track record of generosity. It wasn't just pulled out of the air. Paul says, you gave, you've been generous, and so you can expect that God will reward that by supplying all of your needs. Here's the second statement about generosity, which kind of defines what is, genero- what is generosity, and that's this. Generosity is measured not by how much we give, but by how much we keep. Generosity is measured not by how much we give, but by how much we keep. This whole area of giving and generosity it's, uh, it's sensitive to people. Uh, anytime that we talk about giving at all, it gets just like it is right here, really, really quiet. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's important. It's, just, it's, it's something that we all need to know. And I just want to lay out some groundwork today. And here's a question that I get a lot, especially those that are kind of new in the whole giving experience. And, and they say this, Pastor, how much should I give? How much should I give? In other words, if I'm going to stroke a 
check to the church every week. What should it be? You know what? And we're not just talking about the church here. That's just one layer of it. That's an honest question, but it's not the right question. The right question is this. Not how much should I give. It's how much should I keep? How much should I keep? Let me illustrate it like this. Let's say that Charlie Sheen... You guys know Charlie Sheen? He used to have a show. Two and a, two and a Half Men? Was that it? Yes. One of the most popular shows on television. And he got fired recently. Got fired from that show. And he's been a little bizarre at times. <laughs> now, you need to pray for Charlie. And I feel sorry for Charlie in some ways. But financially, I really don't feel sorry for Charlie having been fired from that show. I did a little research this week and according to the research I found is that the reruns of that show will pay Charlie somewhere north of $100 million over the next few years. Charlie will be fine financially at least. But let's say Charlie has an epiphany in life and, and he, he decides that he is going to do the best he can. He's, he figures out he's going to be responsible for his pile at some point to God. And so he decides, I'm going to do the best I can with the resource. So he hires you to be his money manager, okay? You are going to be responsible for his $100 million over the next few years on what to do. And he, said, he gives you instructions. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to research it and do the very best you can. And I want my money to make a major difference wherever we can. And you're in charge. Now, the wrong question really would be, how much should I give? Because he's already told you that. We want to give it all, you know, reasonably. We want to figure it out and do it, do the best we can. A right question would be, how much should I keep? Okay, this is going to be a full-time gig here, and I need a salary for this. So of this, you know, chunk of resources, how much should I, should I keep? Now, how of you think probably a $100 million salary for that would be a little extreme, okay? It wouldn't give you much to give, right? I mean, it, 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 there's not a trick to this. You guys are looking at me, you're setting me up. Well, a little bit I am. But, it, uh, it, you know, what's my reasonable salary? And then we'll give the rest away. And then he probably would give you some guidelines on, you know, here's what I'm passionate about and here's what you need to do. So that's kind of how it works. Okay, so here's the application. What does Charlie Sheen have to do with God? You're fixing to find out. God is hugely successful. His show is the uh, longest-running show on earth, and it's been number one the whole time. And he owns the whole, whole earth now. I mean, he's got all kinds of resources. He's got so much that he has lots of money managers. In fact, all of us are. And here's what he does. He says, I'm going to give you a piece of my, my resources because it all belongs to me. I'm going to give you a piece of my resources, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a difference in the world. I want you to use it in such a way that it makes a lasting difference in your neighborhood, in your church, in you know, the surrounding area, and all over the world. I want you to make a difference with it. Now, the wrong question is, how much should I, should I keep? Right, no, that's the right question. <laughs> the wrong question is... How much should I give? Because he wants you to give as much of it away as you can. The, the right question is, how much should I keep? And the wrong answer, that's what I meant. The wrong answer about how much should I keep is all of it. Okay, I'm just going to keep all of these resources. No, wrong answer. Wrong answer. 
right question is how much should I keep? And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But before we talk about how much should I keep, let's, let's talk about kind of um, some guidelines for giving the rest away. If you were to manage money for Charlie Sheen or anybody else, they would have guidelines that would say, okay, here's what I'm passionate about. Here's what you need to do. Well, God has guidelines. And let's just go real quickly. And I, you're going to be surprised by some of them. And you're going to be surprised by the order that they're in. But the order is very, very important. Okay, here's four kind of guidelines and, and, the, and they, they build on one another. Forgiving. Number one, uh, with your pile that you don't keep, you need to give to the church first. Malachi 3 and verse 10 says this, bring the whole tithe. Tithe means 10%. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. He says the purpose for the tithe is so that the, the church, the house, will be well taken care of so that there'll be plenty enough for ministry to go forward out of the house, okay? It's not to be just kept in the house, but so that ministry can go in the neighborhoods and ministry can go across the nation and ministry can go across the world. And so the first thing you do is you bring 10% and you bring it to the house. It, it comes to the, to the storehouse, not divided up into a whole bunch of things. It comes to the house. But then he, he, this is one of those... Uh, promise premise things. Uh, if you do that, he says, test me in this, the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floods gates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. So that's kind of the exciting part. He says, if you'll do this part, test me on it and see if I won't bless you. And I challenge you. I challenge everybody in here and everybody that's listening to test God on this and see if he's a liar or not. Bring 10% of your income into the house. Give it to the church to cover the expenses of the local church so the gospel can go out. But that's not all the giving. The second part of, remember the pile, you keep a certain amount and the rest of the pile. Second part of it, you give to your family who's in need. First Timothy 5, Paul establishes to a young pastor, Timothy, how we should treat the poor in the church. And look what he says. In verse 3, he says, take care of any widow. Now, the widow were the truly poor in that culture. I don't have time to... I wish I did. I'd, love, I'd make this a 14-week series if I, if I could. But I'd love to break out who the truly poor, you know, how that relates to the day. These are the poor, poorest of the poor. There are reasons for it. They had, you know, women were not treated uh, in any way equally in the culture that they, they were in. And if a woman was a widow without anybody to support her, it wasn't like she could go get a job and do it herself. She was pretty much toast. And so he says, take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and to repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. So he says, you know what? If you have family members who need help, and this is not, you know, family member who stays in pajamas all day and plays video games and won't get out and get a job. That's not because there's another verse that says that if you won't work, you shouldn't eat. That'll, that'll help you with motivation on getting a job. Okay? But there are some people who they can't work. Okay? Or maybe they're, they're uh, um, in a sacrifice season that you're supposed to be involved in. He says, you take care of them. That's your first. Re- Don't give it to the church. Don't say, hey, you know, Aunt Sally's really having a hard time. You guys got some extra money. No, 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 no. That's not how it's supposed to work. You, you take care of them with your extra resources. He says, don't put them 
on the church role. In fact, First uh, Timothy 5 and verse 8 says, those who won't care for their relatives, especially the, their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. It says, if um, a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can take care of widows who are truly alone. So there may be a situation where your family is so destitute that you can't help somebody else in, in your own home. And yes, then the church becomes a safety net for that. But he says, you take care with your giving and don't feel guilty because it's somebody in your house. You honor God with your tithe first. Give it to the church. You don't take your church tithe and go help Aunt Sally because that's, that's putting it out of order and that's not being generous. He says, you honor God and then you help those in your family. And then the third people you give to is you give to the truly needy in the church. The truly needy in the church. Take care of those you know before you take care of those you don't know. And what's cool about a church like this, we are built on small groups, missional communities, groups of people who have decided to live the mission of Jesus together. Okay? And part of your responsibility in a small group is you look around the small group and if there's somebody there that's in need and they're in the church and they don't have a family that's taken care of them, then you, you look at that and you analyze it. And if it's truly a need, you guys ought to help out. Okay? You don't take your tithe that belongs to the local church. You don't take the money that you need to be helping your family with. You sacrificially give, figure it out, you know, do stuff so that we can raise money, whatever you do. But you give to those people who are in the church so that their needs can be taken care of. And then the, the big church as a whole becomes a safety net. See, uh, if, if they're not in a small group or if their family and their small group can't take care of the whole need or whatever, then the church comes in and we have what's called an Acts 4 fund, which you guys supply some of you out of the margin that God has given you. You go, hey... Let, let me give this to the church above my tithe to help out people because you kind of have a gift of giving. And we've helped hundreds of families. I had one come up to me in the foyer just a minute ago. Say, tell people, I'm part of your story. You guys have cared for me and loved me and I'm back on my feet right now. That's kind of how the church works and the, the church ought to work. In fact, if the church would work like that, the government wouldn't have to do as much. And the government's not very good at doing it anyway. But I'm not going to get into that. Okay? I thank God that we live in a country that cares about the poor, but the church needs to be caring a lot too. And then the fourth thing you give to is you give to the truly needy in the world. In the world. You say, well, why are, why are they last? I was talking to somebody uh, actually in the foyer again. That's why I hang out in the foyer. You guys give me great stuff. But a guy was saying, you know, I, I never heard it taught like this. In, in the church that I was in, um, we were taught... No, we give our stuff outside of the church. We, 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 don't, you know, we don't deal with the people in the church. Well, that's backwards. It might sound, boy, that's really sacrificial and loving. It's stupid. Let me tell you why. Because if we neglect the church, if we neglect our tithe, then the church ceases to exist as it is. We can't do ministry. And then if we neglect our family and we take care of the world before we take care of our family, then who's going to take care of our family? other people. They're going to be a burden to other people. And then if we don't take care of the people in our church because we're giving gazillions away, you know, to wherever it happens to be this huge need, then who's going to take care of the people in our church? It's going to be everybody else's responsibility. 
Okay, So it only makes sense. It's ordered. It's a good order. I think it's a biblical order. So, so after, after that, then we're to be as wise as we can in taking care of those. You know, the neighbor's house burns down or, you know, there's, there's a, a, a need, you know, in the community somewhere or something like Japan. And I hope you're praying for the people in Japan. Something like a tsunami or an earthquake comes and we go, we're going to help with that. And by the way, here's what's cool. Our missions pastor, uh, Jason, uh, is in New York uh, City this weekend. He called me yesterday and he said, been checking on, you know, what we're going to do and all this. And he said, we already have partners on the ground in Japan. And so we're going to be able to funnel resources if people want to give. And so if you want to give above your tithes to uh, help in Japan, you just take your offering envelope and put hope on there. There's a section for hope. And you need to be real careful about who you give to because not everybody really gives to the need. Some people have real slick flyers and they put all their money on real slick flyers and marketing stuff and the overhead is huge and not much money goes to the the need. And so responsible believers, when they're giving outside of the church, they do their research to make sure that they're they're doing the right thing. Uh, What do you do? Here was a cool story. A couple said we could use it. There's a couple that moved here and they, they were tithers to their local church. They moved here, didn't find a church for a while, but they wanted to continue to tithe. And so they began to tithe to a world ministry that uh, was very credible and they were helping kids. And finally they found Seacoast after a period of months. And so they come here and now they know that they need to tithe here, but they're conflicted because if they don't tithe there, it's taking money away. You, you know that, that whole kind of routine. And so they prayed about it. And God seemed to prompt them, hey, there's not a limit on my generosity. Why is there a limit on yours? And so God gave them the faith to do both. And so they were double tithing. We said, how's that working out for you? They said, unbelievable. God has supplied our need. It's an example of claiming Philippians 4.19. Because they were generous, they could depend on God to meet the need. That doesn't mean you go out and commit yourself foolishly to stuff, but you become generous. Now, the question is, well, Greg, this is teaching for rich people, right? Well, in a sense, yeah, because we've done a series before, How to Be Rich. We're all rich, okay? But there are some of us that, you know, we're in challenging times. We're the Philippians church rich. Second Corinthians chapter 8 gives you some background on the Philippian church. This was written about six years before Paul wrote this to the Philippians. And he says this to the Corinthians who are a fairly wealthy church. He says, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters... What God in His kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. Guess where Philippians is? It's in Macedonia. The Philippi church is the Macedonian church. It's one of the churches there. He says, They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. I just want to camp there just for a minute. We're in this series, DNA of Joy. When you really experience joy, you understand the difference between joy and happiness, you manage your thoughts properly, uh, you learn to be content where, where you are, all of the things that we've taught, your joy will overflow in abundant generosity. That was a characteristic of the Philippian church, which was one of the Macedonian churches. Look at this, verse 3. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. That's generous giving. When it inconveniences you, when it's not just what you can afford, but it's far more says and they did it out of their own free will nobody coerced them it wasn't a guilt trip thing 
They didn't say, we're going to lock the doors till we get the offering. Okay, none of that. They begged us, look at this, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They begged. Here's the question. When's the last time you begged somebody to let you give your money away? Oh, please, let me give, let me give, let me give. No, probably we begged people to give stuff to us. Or we begged our spouse to let us buy whatever it happened to be. These guys are so generous, they are giving. And that's why, that's why they could claim the promise. God promises to reward generosity. And generosity is measured not by how much we give, but how much we keep. Let me give you the third statement real quick, and let me kind of wrap it up. Third statement is this. When we are reasonable about what we keep, the kingdom of God advances, the world is better for it, and our giving puts off a great smell. Okay? I'll give you the scripture for that. But let me tell you two stories first. First story is this. I was in a gathering recently that celebrates generous giving. And a guy got up to give his testimony, and it blew me away. In fact, it caused my wife and I to have some deep conversations, and hopefully we're restructuring our life as a result of it. Guy gets up. He's a very ordinary-looking guy. He doesn't look like a guy that you go, wow, that is a guy that's got it all together, rich or whatever. Gave his story. Grew up in a family who owned a construction company, small family construction company. He went away to college, went to a Bible school, felt called into missions, married a girl who also felt called into missions, and uh, they're trying to decide what are they going to do. We're going to give everything up, go to missions. And about that time, his dad calls and says, I'm going to retire. And I'm going to either sell the company or I'll give you the company. But you need to make your decision right away, which led to a lot of intense fellowship with he and his now wife. Okay. They decided after prayer, didn't really know why, kind of a gray area. Sometimes you go through, you follow God, and you don't, you're in a fog. You've been there on decisions. They decided to run the company. So they came back to run the company. And one of the things that they decided was, you know, we want to be able to be involved in missions in our local church and all that. Why don't we set, why don't we ask God, God, we know it's all your money. Um, Let's pray not how much should we give. Let's pray how much should we keep? How much should we keep? And so they prayed and they settled on a modest salary. I'm not even going to mention the number because for some of you it'd be big. Others of you would be really low. But they, they settled on a modest salary. And they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray that God will bless our company so that we can take the resources that he gives it, gives to us and be a blessing uh, both here and around the world. They said the motivation for that was twofold. Number one, they didn't want their children to be raised with issues and problems that rich children have. Number two, they wanted to be a blessing. And so they prayed. God began to bless their business. Today, the business is, uh, does a quarter of a billion dollars every year. They still live on the same income. They have given away unbelievable amounts of money. In fact, they take their whole family on mission trips to go see where they give it. They've done more for missions than they ever could have if they would have left it all and just gone. So there are different ways that God leads. When I heard that, I, I came home, Debbie and I both, and we were like, wow, what does this mean for us? We kind of reviewed our journey. There were times early on when we consumed all that we were given. God gave us a pile, and our answer to how much do we keep was all of it. And we weren't doing very well with all of it. In fact, we were so far over our heads in debt and all of this, when we first heard a message that God wanted us to be generous, we didn't see how we were going to do it, but we committed to it. And we went out and we bought a book on um, budgeting from a Christian perspective. There wasn't like uh, 
what's uh, what's the one now that that we do around here? Dave Ramsey. He wasn't around then. And uh, so we climbed out of it and we began to give. And, and for the most part, we've gotten the tithe part, that first part, right. And occasionally we've given extravagantly when there's been a need. Uh, sometimes when uh, we've had a need here at the church to expand a building or whatever, we've put off purchases. We've said, God, we'll, you know, what, we'll, if you'll help us figure it out, and we've done what I call sacrificial giving. We've done it periodically. But I was inspired to take it to another level. And so we started to inventory where the finish line should be for us. And everybody's finish line is different. What, what should our income, not just what our salary is, but what do we really need? What is our, what is our income? And then above that, everything can be given to God. So we began to pray about that. And then we also said, what if we get little windfalls? You know, some little windfalls, like, you know, when you get more back in taxes and that kind of thing. Rather than increasing our level of living, what if we said it would increase our level of giving? And then I began to think, what about big windfalls? What if everybody buys my book? Rather than increasing our level of living, what if we increased our level of giving? We started getting excited about that. And it's already started. We got just a tiny little windfall. I guess I, I was just like, rather than I'm going to go buy something new, it was like, oh God, who can we give this to? This is so cool. You're starting to do the whole thing. And I think we're starting to get it. And I thought, well, I read this scripture. Verse 18 says, at the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts that you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. I thought, God, their gifts smelled great. I wonder if my gifts smell good to you. Because I don't know about you, I don't want my gifts to stink. (laughs) And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. We're coming to the end of this series. It seems like the last kind of connector in the DNA of joy is generosity. When you're full of joy, you're a generous giver. I want to lead you in this. But I want Seacoast to become known as a church full of radically generous people who are supporting the local church like it should be supported, who are supporting their families like they should be supported, who are supporting the people in church, where that the newspaper starts doing articles on how well that we take care of the poor in our church who are supporting uh, those who are poor or devastated in our community and in places like Japan and around the world. I want us to become known as radical, radically generous givers whose gifts are a sweet smell to God. Will you join me in that quest? Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how powerful the examples in your word are. And now, God, I pray that you would challenge us, each one of us individually. God, that you would challenge us to just increase our level of commitment to following you. God, that out of our joy, there would spring just an an abundance of generosity and giving. And as a result, we would... um, be able to claim Philippians 4.19 
We're generous, and you bless, and you promise to supply generous people. And God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.